If you have your Bible, turn with me to Exodus 15. Exodus 15, verses 1 through 21 is where we'll be today. What do, what do redeemed people do? If you know that you've been saved from certain death, if you know that your salvation in no way depends on you or is brought about because of anything that you contributed to it, but because God miraculously saved you, what is the, what is the right and proper response? I think one of the things that Exodus 15 does is that it, it shows us in case there was any doubt that, well, what redeemed people do is they sing. They rejoice. Uh, in Psalm 50, there's, uh, there's an interesting little construction or tie that runs through the psalm. At one point, the psalmist is comparing or contrasting um, those who are uh, with the Lord and those who are not and distinguishing between the two. And one of the things that the, that the psalmist says to God's people is, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you, and you will honor me. I suspect that one of the things that that verse is saying is that we honor God by allowing him to save us. Or, we honor God by showing that we're people who need to be saved. And so when he saves us, we honor God. But then a little while later, later in the psalm towards the end, it specifies a little bit further and it says, A sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. We, don't, we can't repay God for what he's done to us, what he's done for us. Right? We can't really build a monument that's going to satisfy or make up. We can't work off the debt that he freed us from. To do that would lend itself to the idea that there actually is a manageable way to bridge the gap between us and God. No, the only right response or at least the only first response, let's say it that way, the only right first response for those people who have experienced God's salvation is to praise him and acknowledge that he is the one who's done it. That being said, in Exodus 15, as the people have just come through the experience of the parting of the Red Sea, and they have walked across and they've seen the Egyptian army drowned and destroyed as the waters come back. And now in 15.1, as they take up their song of praise to the Lord, as we begin to read here, I want, you to, I want you to notice one of the features of this psalm is to display, on the one hand, that God's salvation comes because of his unrivaled strength and power. He saves his people in ways that only he can. But then secondly, what we also want to consider is that even in this psalm, the very fact that God saves his people from certain death is itself reason for God's people to sing in anticipation of more acts of deliverance and salvation that he'll do in the future. God's salvation is full and whole and complete. To have part of it is to have all of it. 
So follow along with me, starting in Exodus 15, verse 1, and listen as we read, as this song communicates the idea that the Lord not only saves, but that he saves and secures his people by his strong power. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. There's the deliverance, and now listen to the security. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, and they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Follow with me at verse 19. For the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you cause us to marvel at the wonder of your salvation, at the power that you, have been, that you have brought to bear on behalf of the people that you have redeemed. 
Father, thank you that our deliverance is not merely a deliverance from the penalty of sin, but a deliverance from the power of sin and one day even deliverance from the very presence of sin. Help us to walk faithfully and confidently in your salvation. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So the Lord saves and secures a people by his strong power. We're going to try to take this uh, at least verses 1 through, what would that be? 1 through 18 is probably where we'll spend most of our time. We're going to try to take it in two parts. We're not going to be able to go through this verse by verse, but we'll, we'll pull out maybe some broader thematic elements in the, the two halves of the song. So the two ways that we'll take it, we'll, we'll look at verses 1 through 12, which is emphasizing the Lord's strength that he exercised to save his people. That's in the, the actual deliverance at the Red Sea and in the destruction of their enemies. So number one, what this song that Moses and the people sing go to say about the Lord is that the Lord is strong, is powerful to save his people. And then number two, in verses 13 through 18, the song still continues to highlight the strength of the Lord, the power, but in uh, a more specific way. Not only is the Lord strong enough to save, but he's strong enough to secure and to deliver his people safely home. Ultimately, what this song does is that it reminds us of the fact that every single person who belongs to the people of God is assured and is guaranteed that the same power that brought them out of death into life is the same power that's going to bring them safely home. So number one, God is strong. The Lord is strong to save his people. One of the things that's very hard to miss, especially in the early portions of the song, is the fact that there is a power play or a, a, a power dynamic, a power struggle at work in this song. It is the strength of the Lord going up against the strength of Egypt. So you see this in various ways. Notice that more than once you have a reference to horses and chariots. So if you look at verse 1, I'll sing to the Lord, he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Verse 4 says that Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the sea. All of this, of course, is, is set against the backdrop of what has already been recorded, which is that the full force and might of Pharaoh's army was being brought to bear or was chasing down God's people who were trapped with the seat of their backs and the Egyptian army in front of them. They're unprepared. They are not a fighting force. They're going out with women and children and walking on foot, and here comes a fully mechanized army looking to either bring them back to slavery by force or destroy them if they try to resist. Egypt, Pharaoh, with the Egyptians, brings the full force of his might against God's people, and it comes to nothing. It doesn't do anything. It does not touch God's people. 
And one of the ways that, th that this is brought out, even some of the picturesque language that's used, so you've got the contrast, you're, you're picturing a, a, an army charging down heavily on this mass of defenseless people who have nowhere to go, nowhere to hide, they're out in the open. This is a slaughter waiting to happen. But you also have ways in which sort of creatively the, the, the poetry, the song, sort of takes up the mindset of the Egyptians as they're chasing the Israelites down. And then in contrast to what the Egyptians are intending to do, it, it shows us what actually ends up happening. So if you look down, for example, in verse 9, verse 9 is, is projecting out what the enemy is saying as they are charging at the Israelites, as the distance between the army and the helpless people is shrinking, you can hear or you can imagine the Egyptians saying this in verse 9. We're going to pursue. We're going to get them. We're going to divide the spoil. We're going to be satisfied with this slaughter. We're going to draw the sword. We're going to destroy them. In this one verse, six verbs are piled up all verbs, all things that the enemy is saying that they're going to do to God's people. We miss it a little bit in the English, but in the, in the Hebrew, it's, it's almost sort of a, a very short, uh, staccato-like. You can almost kind of feel the, the, the drumbeat or the horses as they're charging, and there's this buildup of anticipation as they're about to pounce on God's people. And then verse 10 as you're hearing the, the plots of the enemy and they're breathlessly waiting to meet God's people to destroy them, to take them back. Then verse 10, what does God do? He exhales. As the enemy pursues God's people, breathlessly anticipating the slaughter that is about to happen, thinking and certain that they are going to have their way with God's people, God is seated on his throne in the heavenly places, and his heartbeat has not raised at all. He has a resting heart rate of zero? <laughs> God is seated on his throne, and as the enemy is breathlessly coming after his people, God is not panicking. He is not hyperventilating. He is merely sitting there doing what he has done from eternity past to eternity future, which is being and ruling. And the way that he shows and demonstrates just a small, infinitesimal piece of his power is in the language of this psalm is that he lets out his breath and the breath from his lungs parts the waters so that the people can pass and brings the waters back down and destroys the might of Pharaoh's army. God's people don't do that. The Egyptians can't do anything like that. This is something that only God can do. The Lord is my salvation. It is no effort to God to save his people. 
It's not even fair to compare the ease in which God delivers His people to the ease in which we inhale and exhale. Even to inhale and exhale requires some effort of muscle or innate energy. There is no exertion that God puts out when He saves His people. He just does it because He is the very embodiment of power and life and existence. This is the God who has saved you. What do you have to fear? Your enemies, both seen and unseen, they plot, they scheme, they breathlessly await the moment at which they can come and devour you and destroy you and bring you to nothing. And we panic and we sweat and we tremble and God remains unmoved. He destroys the enemy with the word of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. And he gives us his word, even in written form, to say that this is the power that you can hold fast. This is the power that I have given to you to guarantee and ensure that you will be saved and delivered from your enemies. Listen, people, one of the things, depending on where you are, I'm, I'm talking about in, in your experience of the Christian life right now, Understand that this power is not merely a power to settle issues that are external to you, right? You've got that annoying coworker or that incorrigible spouse or child or whatever it is or the problems of life that we all encounter today out in the world, right? Yes, the, the Lord's power, it, it works that way. It saves us, it delivers us. But, but let's be honest. The, the other forces arrayed against us are both seen and unseen. Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against powers and principalities that are unseen. Every waking and sleeping moment that you exist, you have an enemy that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Why have you not succumbed to that powerful enemy? Because the Lord is your salvation. Your enemies are not even only external to you in what you can see and external to you in what you can't see, that is the natural and the spiritual world, your enemy oftentimes is actually what is within you. Your own desires and lust, the temptations of the flesh, the weakness, the fickleness of our hearts, even that wars against us. If your hope to find victory over the weaknesses of your own heart or the temptations of your flesh, 
is little more than you're going to give a little bit more effort. You've got a new program. You've got a new 10 steps. If it doesn't go beyond that to saying no, the one who saves me even from myself is the Lord himself. If you don't have that, you don't have salvation and deliverance from the sin that so easily entangles you. John says that this is the confidence that we have with him, that even when our own heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. The Lord has set you free from that life of sin and slavery. You are no longer bound. He breaks the power of canceled sin. And as we continue to face enemies and threats both inside and out, we ought to come back to this same realization that the one and only defense and claim that we can make is exactly what the people say here. The Lord is our salvation. Let me press this a little bit further, if I could, just for a minute. It's, it's as great as what this is. There's also another element. It's sort of you, you peel back a layer or so to see the way in which God's power is working on behalf of his people. Just for the sake of time, let's, let's do it this way, just by recollection. When in Genesis chapter 1, when God sets about creating the world... Do you remember what he does in order to create the dry land? In verse 2, we're told that darkness was over the face of the deep, the deep waters, and that the Spirit was hovering over the surface of the waters. So, water covers everything. And then the Lord steps in, and he begins to... In verses, I think it's 9 and 10 in Genesis 1, he begins to pull the water back so that dry land is there and he begins to create life. This same kind of language is what's being used here in this song. Look, for example, in verse 5 and in verse 8. The deeps... That's Genesis creation language. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Look at verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing water stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. And then skip to the further end, down in, verses down in verse 19. For the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. That word for dry land there is the same word that's used in Genesis 1 to talk about the dry land that appears when God pulls the water back in his act of creation. God's power, in other words, is so effective in its working, that it creates and it saves a people for himself. 
The very fact that you are here is evidence of the fact that God is powerful to save. This church, Edgewood, this does not come into existence by itself. There was a time when this church was not, right? And then it was. How did it go from being not to being? God creates a people for himself. He brings life out of death. He brings order out of chaos. He brings something out of nothing. You can no more save yourself in any way than you can create yourself. But praise be to God that his power is a saving, creating power, and we celebrate that every time that we gather together. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians 2? For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, right? He says in verse 10, for we are his work, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. This, this, you, us, we are a special act of creation. And God creates not to let us wither and die under the forces that oppose us, but he creates us so that he will save us and deliver us safely home, which is point number two. Not only is the Lord strong enough to save his people, the Lord is strong enough to secure his people. There's a turn at verse 13. After saying that the Lord has caused the earth to swallow the enemies of his people. Verse 13, in your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. Listen, I, you need to see this connection. Look up at verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He is my salvation. The strength of the Lord to save is, in verse 13, the strength that he exercises to guide them to his holy habitation. It's all one and the same piece. But notice what he says as he's leading the people, as they're anticipating what God is going to do. Verse 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread have fallen upon them. These people groups that are listed are people that Israel will come into contact with both before she enters into the promised land and even after she enters into the promised land. The language that's used here is dramatic. There is a measure of hyperbole that's at play when it talks about the people being frozen or being terror or in terror, we know as we continue to read the story 
that it's not as if Israel is going to walk out from the Dead Sea, or the Dead Sea, the Red Sea, excuse me, the Red Sea, never to have any threats again, never to be bothered, never to see danger. But by virtue of the fact that God has brought these people out and in his salvation has destroyed the forces aligned against them, he has put all other people on notice. These are mine. There will still be resistance. Some of the resistance that Israel will encounter from some of these very people who are named in these verses will resist them in a very passive-aggressive way. They'll come up on their doorstep and they'll ask, will you let us cut through your territory to save all of these miles and miles of wandering because we've got young children here? And they'll say, no. We're not going to help you in any way. Not even basic neighborly kindness. Some of them will be resisted that way. It will be a passive-aggressive kind of resistance. Other resistance will come as God's people are viewed as a threat, and in response to that perceived threat, the enemies of God become enemies of His people, and they set to war against God's people. But the point in all of this is to say, because God has already set His work of salvation in motion, whether in passive resistance or in aggressive resistance, nothing changes the end result. Every single one that God brings out, He brings safely home. It doesn't matter how you view your situation or your lot in life. It doesn't matter if it seems like the deck is stacked against you, if you continue to fall and stumble the same way over and over and over again. Stumbling or running, walking or crawling, it all ends the same way. We make it home. And the reason that we need one another in no small measure is because we desperately, especially when the Christian life gets hard, we need a voice outside of our own that is able to remind us of the promises of God. I need someone in times of weakness, and in times of failure, in times of doubt and uncertainty, to say to me, in spite of what it looks like, in spite of the forces aligned against you, God's word is true. He will not fail you. He will bring you home. And you need that. Because unless you're resting and relying on the promises of God you are going to find that trying to do life on your own and in your own strength and with your own optimism, however much of that you can generate, is not going to fuel you. It's not going to carry you for the long run. 
Hold your place here. Go to Revelation chapter 21. I should have told you, make sure you're holding your place in Exodus 15. Are you also holding your place in Exodus 15 while you're turning to Revelation? Okay, if you're not, you need to not only turn to Revelation 21, you need to turn back to Exodus 15. And you need to stick a pen or a finger or something like that in there so that you can flip back and forth. All right, so, so start with me back in Exodus 15, verse 13. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. That is, you have guided them to the holy place where you live. Look further in verse 17 and 18. We come back to that same idea you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, that is, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Now, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, or the dwelling place of God, is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's what all of this is moving to. God's people living in God's place under God's rule. And by his strong and certain power, if you have turned in repentance and faith to acknowledge that your God is also your King and Savior, that is what is coming to you.
If you're here, if you don't know what it means to have that sure and certain hope, not just in this life, but in the life, in the age to come, you ought not to leave without talking to someone, to any of us before you go. I'll be in the back. JT and Andy will be near the front. Or you can get anyone in these pews. You can turn to them and ask them, tell me more about how to get in on that. Because all of that that God does, he does as a free gift to anyone who wants to come and get it. Let me close this way before we go to communion. Let me say something about the idea of worship in and of itself in terms of how that relates to a local congregation or a church body. And I'll do this very briefly. Remember when we were looking at the Passover episode, we pointed out that in that chapter and a half, it is surprising to find that only two verses are given to the actual telling of the event of Passover depending on how you count, anywhere from 2 to 10, whereas the whole section on the Passover is some 60 or 70 verses. In other words, 50 or 60 out of 70 verses are given to talking about how you are going to celebrate Passover after Passover has happened. And then we come here to Exodus 15, and we see that the very first thing that God's people do when they encounter and experience His redeeming power and His salvation is they gather together and they sing. Moses and the people sing together. Let me encourage you to think about the fact that the same way that God marked his people out in the Old Testament, the same way that he made them look different and in some ways even odd, was by setting up ways for them to praise him and to worship him. He gave them a meal in the Passover to rehearse and replay over and over and over again so that they would remember what God had done and remind themselves of all the faithful promises that he had given them. He gives them songs to sing, not privately in the car, although that's good, not only in the shower, although that maybe is good, but to sing together because God saves a person to make them part of a people. Anyone in the Old Testament <coughs> framework who did not gather with the people to celebrate Passover, to sing and to celebrate the festivals that God had given them, would have been looked at with suspicion in the sense that they would say, something is not right here. This one who claims to be one of us ought to be with us celebrating this right now. And it is no less true today one of the ways that God marks us out as a people, that he distinguishes us from the rest of the world, is by separating us out on Sunday morning to say, now you, just like all of the people in redemptive history, are going to gather together and you're going to do what only my people do, which is you're going to sing to me. 
And on special occasions, you're going to come and I'm going to give you a meal to share together to say that we are all partaking in the life-giving power of our Savior, Jesus Christ. People, don't view this that we do on a weekly basis as optional. It's not. If you view this as optional, coming together, gathering, hearing God's Word, singing His praises with your brothers and sisters, you will impoverish your soul. You will be weak and shallow. You will be easy prey out, out on your own. And God forbid, but the worst case scenario is that you think that you can separate yourself from the people of God and yet calmly, casually convince yourself that you are in fact one of the congregation when in fact you're not. Let me pray as we turn and we continue our worship and celebration of God's salvation in the act of communion. Bow with me. Father, how good you are to give us these things by which we can together share in the reminder and in the promised reward of your salvation through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who comes and indwells us and guarantees that this is no mere dead formal act, but that this is one of the means by which we continue to grow in your grace. We thank you and we praise you for that. Amen. The, the language that Jonathan was using there from Exodus 15, describing how the Lord, as all of the enemies, all of the Egyptians come with full force and full might up against God's people after he's redeemed them and brought them up out of the land, is that the Lord merely exhales, and they're defeated. Hello. They're defeated. As we think about the new and better exodus that's been accomplished that we have been brought into as God's redeemed people through Jesus Christ, we recognize that just as God was not panicking as all the Egyptians in their full force were coming up against his people, the Lord was not panicking as Jesus Christ, his son, goes to the cross. And the full force of all evil, of all humanity's wickedness and sinfulness, comes up against the son. And the defeat of sin and evil happens as God exhales again and Jesus breathes his last. And we are brought into that glorious victory as he accomplishes redemption for us. If you will turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 52. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, first want to say who this is for. Because in this meal we are remembering that God has marked out a people for himself and he delights to do so. He delights to continue to bring people to himself. And so during this time, as we pass out the bread and then the cup, this meal is for, we'd say, baptized believers. So those who have turned from their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus and have obeyed, walked in obedience and being baptized in the faith, showing that this, they are marked out, that they are amongst God's people. And so we want to always encourage and emphasize the fact that we're not doing that to shame anyone, 
But this is our sincere prayer during this time is that as you let the, the cup and the bread pass by, we pray that during this time as we reflect on Jesus that you would be prayerful to the Lord, that you would be thinking about the salvation that could be yours in and through Jesus Christ that's offered to you that anyone who by faith can step into. And so we pray that you would do so. And for those of you who might know Jesus, who maybe have not walked in obedience to be baptized yet, that you would consider baptism and what it means to be marked out and to be set apart and to say, yes, I identify with the Lord who has saved me and redeemed me and also with his people that he has brought me into. So that's what we pray during this time that you would be thinking and praying through during this time. As we read through Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 12 and then 53, I want to encourage you, please listen for the echoes of Exodus, but realize that this is a greater Exodus that Isaiah is prophesying. So listen out for words like arm or hand or salvation and how the people go out. Just as in Exodus 15, the Lord brings out a people with his arm and how they go out. But remember, just, just remember, Exodus 13, the people have to go out in haste because their enemy will pursue. And notice in 53, the servant that leads the people out and now he, uh, everything is accomplished through his arm and through his hand. Notice the true lamb of God that's prophesied in Isaiah 53 and how the Lord redeems his people. Let's read Isaiah 52, verse seven. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice, together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth into singing, your waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Notice this, they don't depart in haste. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Skip down to 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We are the transgressors. We all have gone astray, but Jesus has come and taken our sins, our sorrows, our griefs upon himself. And so as we partake of the bread and the cup, we come remembering Jesus. He is our salvation and his salvation is found in no other man and in no other name. Men, would you come forward to serve the bread? I would ask as you uh, get the bread and the cup later on, if you would please hold on to it until we have served everyone and then we'll partake of it when we're done.
Most holy God, we thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, you would send your son to save us, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and even though we have rebelled against you, but you, in your grace and in your mercy, and out of delight, no one twisted your arm. You do not do so begrudgingly. You send your son to save us. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you would come as the true lamb of God to lay down your life to redeem a people. So, Lord God, we come celebrating and praising your name, confessing and acknowledging, and acknowledging that salvation is found in you and in you alone. Lord God, you are our salvation. We thank you, Jesus, that you would give up your body unto death to make rebels brothers and sisters of you. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat. As we dismiss in just a few moments, we'll do so reminded that we are God's people, that the Lord has redeemed a people for himself, that we are set apart, that we are marked out. But we do so not as people malnourished or not, uh, not having what we need. In Psalm 23, verse 5, it says this, You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Just as we see from Exodus. So as we come together today, partaking of the table together that the Lord Jesus has set out, we are acknowledging that the Lord has prepared a feast for his people, but it's not in the absence of enemies. While we live in this fallen and broken world, we do have an enemy that is after us to come and, to come and steal and kill and destroy. But what the Lord Jesus has invited us into is to come in and feast. And as one pastor put it, it says, you come into my safety and feast while I go out and deal with the enemies. And what looked like defeat on the cross was his victory and our victory in him as his blood was spilt for our sake. So we remember that we are his because of what he's done for us. But not only that, but as we go out in just a few moments, we go, we go out recognizing that the Lord is with his people and the people that he has saved, he will bring safely home. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me or pursue me all the days of my life. Will the Lord forsake his people? Will he neglect his work? No, he will delight to bring us safely home, and we rejoice in that. Men, would you come forward to pass out the cup?
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you would allow your blood to be spilled out for our sake so that through your blood we could be cleansed and find forgiveness for sins. We thank you that you delight to take sinners and make them holy and not just sinners as individuals, Lord God, but you make yourself a people. And we see from Ephesians chapter 5 that you do so, Lord Jesus, to, that you would make us holy and spotless without blemish. That you would make us beautiful in your sight, a bride adorned for you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you would lay down your life so that we could have life in you and forgiveness of sins. And so while we often carry with ourselves the shame, the guilt of sins and transgressions, we acknowledge and confess and find assurance in what we do here today, together as a body, that all of our sins have been dealt with and paid for through what you have done and accomplished for us. And we come proclaiming that you are our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us drink. We will close out the service. Revelation chapter 7, verse 12. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. God bless. You're dismissed.